0: Taking off episode 207 was Citizens Against People with the song Murder Me, America.
1: Then after that was Moment of Truth with the song Sick People. Both bands are from Rochester, New York.
0: Awesome. Uh, I have a cool On This Day in History. Well, I don't know if it's cool, but it happened On This Day in History. Okay. In 1860, the Pony Express debuts. Hmm. Yeah. On April 3rd, 1860, the first Pony Express mail traveling by horse and rider relay team simultaneously leave St. Joseph, Missouri and Sacramento, California. Ten days later, on April 13th, the westbound rider and mail packet completed the approximately 1,800-mile journey and arrived in Sacramento, beating the eastbound packet's arrival in St. Joseph by two days and setting a new standard for speedy mail delivery.
1: Wow. And look at us today. <laughs> it's pretty incredible. <laughs> Think of how... Uh, no, I'm not, I'm not even going to say it.
0: Um, it goes on to say, although ultimately short-lived and unprofitable, the Pony Express captivated America's imagination and helped win federal aid.
1: Man, you're making this too easy for me to insert <laughs> comments about the postal system.
0: For a more economical overland postal system. It also contributed to the economy of towns on its routes and served the mail service needs of the American West in the days before the Telegraph or an efficient transcontinental railroad.
1: Hmm. Man, that was the beginning of the end, wasn't it? (laughs) In
0: 1860. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Also on this day, today, we talked to guest Glenn Cummings.
1: Yes, we do. Glenn has been... I mean, Glenn's going to tell you about it. But Glenn... I knew Glenn from Luda Christ and Scatterbrain. Yeah,
0: you guys go way back.
1: We go way back. <laughs> <laughs> but hes uh, he's been in other bands. Yeah. He's done other work. Yeah. He, I think, co-produced some stuff for Mucky Pup. Which I didn't ask him about during our conversation, but... It's on the internet, so it has to be true.
0: That's right. We'll ask him next time.
1: Yeah. Next time we will. Yeah. Uh, And he talks about his. uh, Yeah, I mean, it's uh, it's all in the in the conversation. Yeah. But he talks about what he's doing musically currently. Yes. um, As well, and we're going to play a song by Ludacris before we talk to Glenn, and the song is "God Is Everywhere."
2: Gods on the road. I'm keeping my head up and watching the whole. What do you If there was a God, Every time I get the blues, I really a in the garden. I'm not the I the Gods Gods on the I'm up
1: Hey. Hey, Glenn. Hey, Glenn. Well, thanks for taking the time to chat with us.
3: Oh, my pleasure. Like, it's been so, it's been just super fun, like, sharing some stuff and, like, like con- connecting with some people I haven't talked to in a while and so this seems like this just seems great
1: perfect well, well thank you it's great for us too <laughs> um, so can I start with I have, a, I have a question that's probably well a couple of questions that are kind of random sounding probably
3: <laughs> yeah <laughs> one, I, I love that
1: okay um, one of them is uh, who? was or is swami swami swami
3: <laughs> i love that question <laughs> okay, okay. <laughs> cuz it's from the it's from one of the um it's from one of the bios right like yeah. one of the ludicrous bios yeah okay so tell me if any of my anecdotes get too long no no but um so so I grew up in Long Island and I started going to school in New York in like the summer of 83 and you know I was like super into the the kind of New York hardcore scene and actually I was just into anything that was going on in New York musically. So the f- first band and we can come back and talk about this I I, I through a friend I connected and played in this hardcore band called rapid deployment force mm. that was kind of in New York. And like the, those guys were from Staten Island and we did a whole bunch of shows. Like we did some CB shows. We warmed up for a black flag at mm. the reggae lounge uh, in New York, which was like a club that only opened occasionally uh-huh. <laughs> and a seven and kind of all this stuff. But, um, maybe like three months after doing the band, the singer left and the band sort of folded and maybe it was more like six months. So I kind of, I moved back out to Long Island, back in with my parents. And I was looking for kind of like punk band or hardcore band to be in. And I answered this ad in the like local, I think it was like whatever Long Island's music paper was. I can't remember what Mm. the name of it was. And And it was for this band named Horror Planet, which strangely, I had seen the band before. And um, they're they very, very strange were a very, very strange band, and I help, I like to think I helped them get strangers. <laughs> um, and so they were kind of like somewhere, like they weren't really a punk band. they were more like a weirdo band like. They kind of liked psychedelia stuff and they liked punk stuff, and they, they had no particular style. And so part of what they did was just everybody dressed weird.
4: Mm-hmm.
3: So I had like, I think I had some clothes that were from my um, like my, ex- my ex-girlfriend, or maybe they were my mother's old clothes. That I used to wear to shirt uh, to shows. <laughs> and everybody in the band had these weird names that they kind of made up for themselves, which is sort of like a first generation punk rock tradition. Yeah. Right. That mm-hmm. like, sort of went out of style by the mid 80s. And so somebody gave me the name because I had these kind of psychedelic clothes. That I, they, they named me Swami, Swami, Swami in <laughs> our planet. Oh, you know what it was. I also had this guitar that had like this hypnotic pattern on it. So you kind of don't choose your nicknames and bands a lot of the time. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so we made one seven-inch and we played a bunch, and then eventually, okay, I go on too much. You'll you'll find this out, but. The last show, like Horror Planet decided to break up, and the last show we played as Horror Planet, we played, we, we got off the stage, and the rest of the band loaded up their stuff and went home, and I thought, I'm just going to stay and watch the next act, and I stayed and watched the next act that, that went on, and the next act that went on was oh, wow! who I had never heard of, I had never met any of the guys. And I literally sat there and watched them and I thought, these guys are the best, this is the best band I've ever seen in my life, right? It was, it was Tommy, Al, uh, Mark Canabrocki and, and Chuck Valley. And so after they so, and there was nobody in the place. It was oh, wow. Ludicrous, <laughs> and it was me and the bartender, right? <laughs> And they kind of played a show, and in between every song, I was like, Woo! And it was like a super comical thing, right? Uh, they were like, Thank you, guy with the dashiki on, you know, like, whatever, whatever. And so at the end of the show, I went up and I was like, You guys are the best band ever. You know, it's like, I was like, But you, you know what would be, you'd be even better with me in the band, like, playing the <laughs> guitar, whatever. And surprisingly, they said, yeah, yeah, we we watched the, the show. You guys were great. Um, yeah, we're practicing, like, next Tuesday. Why don't you come by? So... <laughs> wow. And then, basically, I was sort of in the band. I just started going to rehearsals. And um, so there was this very funny transition from from playing with the Horror Planet guys into kind of being in Ludacrist mm. and uh, and forming that sort of like, it was still like Ludacrist 1.0. Yeah. It was like Ludacrist 1.0 with two guitar players instead of one.
2: Mm.
3: How random to- is that? <laughs> and Tommy kind of, you know, like in some ways Tommy was, his o- was always a fan of Horror Planet, uh-huh. and uh, Paul Cleagley Paul went on to like have a couple other bands, and uh, the singer, and he's actually really, really super interesting, weird guy, but because it came from Long Island, Long Island is sort of has more gravity than the rest of the world, I think, because none of the music is able to escape, <laughs> <laughs> escape to other parts of the world, but then because Tommy kind of knew that, then basically when he wrote that bio, I became Swami, Swami, Swami. <laughs> <laughs>
2: yeah,
3: so weird. No, and no, and basically, me and three other people got the joke. <laughs> you know, so it's like, which is very Tommy, right? Like,
1: so did you did you leave Horror Planet immediately?
3: Yeah, that was uh, that was our last show. I, I can't remember why we. I can't remember why we stopped. I think. I think some of the guys were fighting with each other
2: mm-hmm.
3: or I can't really remember. I can't really remember why the band kind of stopped, um, but the, the whole band just, maybe the band continued a little bit afterwards and there were some, there were some shows with like some members swapped in and out. And then, um, then the, the majority of the guys went and formed this other band called Bozo Schmo, Mm -hmm. which is also like this kind of bizarro kind of band. Mm -hmm. And then Paul went and had a band called God Mm -hmm. that played for a long time. And then, and then another band, which I can send you a link to the CD that, that made a pretty amazing album, maybe about four or five years ago. But again, it's one of these things where I'm pretty sure nobody ever heard the album,
2: hmm.
3: except for except for me and Paul and the guys in the band.
1: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, when you did you start out playing guitar? Or did you start on a different instrument, like long before?
3: Uh, yeah, those. like long, long time ago. Like in high school, mm-hmm. I wanted to um, I wanted to play bass. Mm-hmm. So my first. My first instrument was like a, a, a Memphis, you know, P-Bass copy mm. that I bought at, at uh, I can't one. it, was like some Long Island store. And then, I mean, honestly, this is in like seventh grade or something. Mm. Um, and then I got a band together with the guys in my, you know, like on my block, like, like they were just like the guys I hung around with. And the guitar was harder to figure out,
4: mm-hmm.
3: you know, cause it had more strings. Yeah. Like you've heard this a million times. Yeah. So I was <laughs> like, I was like, Hey, just give me the guitar. I'll give you the bass and I'll go home and figure out the guitar. Mm-hmm. And then I just became like the guitar player in that band. <laughs> and then, and then I'm still like the guitar player now, like, uh, like 45 years later or something, you know?
2: Did
0: you ever <laughs> yeah. learn the bass?
3: No. (laughs) (laughs) No, I mean, like... You know, if you're a a guitar player, you kind of... you kind of think of the bass as, like, uh, a guitar with... a lower guitar with less strings, but it really is its own instrument. So, you know, I've... I've done arrangements where I've written the bass parts or I've done recordings where I played the bass, Mm -hmm. but... The truth is, I'm definitely no bass player. <laughs> you know, I can uh, I can play with my fingers or get different tones, and I can I can play f- fairly cleanly and fairly fast. But I'm not a um, I don't think like a bass player. Mm-hmm. You know, like in terms of like lining up with the drums or kind of all those things.
0: It's funny you say that because Ken started out as a guitar player yeah. and switched to bass, but yeah. now he just keeps buying more basses <laughs> with more strings. <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
1: So I, I played guitar for a, a long time. I don't know how many, over 30 years. And then I, I switched to bass. I always thought, of, like you said, I always thought of bass as like, you know, why would I play a bass when I could play a guitar that has six strings instead of, you know what I mean, the bass had four strings. But uh, I switched to bass and I had, I think I'm still transitioning, but like a hard time kind of changing my mindset from playing guitar to, to like you said, a, a bass is supposed to be a, a different instrument. Yeah. Oh, but I was just well, playing it it's... like a guitar with a big neck. <laughs>
3: <laughs> right. It's like, right, it's like uh, guitar for tall people. Yeah. <laughs> 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 yeah it's like bass is so it bass is so interesting because it's not only like has a different relationship to the way you know like that it's lower mm-hmm. or whatever but it like sits in a different relationship to the drums mm-hmm. and then it just sits in relationship to like other people in different way like I always feel like you wind up with guitar players who are kind of more songwriters, but not always singers. Mm. And then you wind up with like the big benefit of bass players is that everybody needs a bass player, mm-hmm. like a good bass player. Mm-hmm. And so a lot of the bass players I know, like play in a couple things because like, it, it winds up being a more social, like, I'm not exactly sure why, but it like exists in the world as a more social thing. somehow. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's actually, that part's actually really attractive to me about, um, I, I, I live most of the time in, in New York. And um, I'll say, oh, and I also kind of, before New York, I lived in Nashville. <laughs> I could say, nobody in New York or in Nashville needs another guitar player. <laughs>
2: like, <laughs> if there's
3: one thing. Like they'll just like show you like there's the there's the road out of town you know <laughs> yeah. really neat. but like almost everybody if you say you're a bass player then, oh you come by come by, let's go get a drink you, you, we got a project or you know like whatever it's like <laughs> 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 nobody you know, like if you want to be friends with people and do stuff it's far better to be a bass player <laughs>
1: <laughs> so. So you came into Ludacris, and I think—correct me if I'm wrong—because this is just uh, the information we gather is from the internet, and a lot of times it's not right. <laughs> um, yeah, no worries. Did
3: everybody? Yeah. Yeah.
1: Did um, did Ludacris have a demo before you joined, and then that got re-recorded with you playing?
3: Yeah, that's so. The the whole backstory was that um, the first two guys were Alan, who called himself Albatross,
4: mm-hmm.
3: and and Mark Cannabrocki, who called himself Mark Durnex. Must have been some product called Durnex, like a toilet cleaner product or something. Right? So, <laughs> so Mark and Alan. Basically, just got together and and kind of in high school and started writing songs, and they called themselves Intestinal Militia, <laughs> and um, they just I think Alan sang and and basically they wrote the first batch of songs that became ludicrous songs, and then Chuck actually I think they wound up with the, with a singer whose name whose nickname was Chud. And then, they, then Chuck actually joined, bef- I think before Tommy joined the band as singer. I could be totally wrong here. And I think Intestinal Militia had one CBGB show. And then they sort of split where it was like Intestinal Militia, and they got Tommy, and they sort of kind of became two different um, – Bands Like it was still really the core of the band was Alan and and Mark. Mm -hmm. But then Tommy started writing some lyrics and, um, and Chuck was active and stuff. So then like they just had started having more, uh, you know, they were like getting further with Ludacris. So intestinal militia sort of fell by the wayside. And so Ludacris eventually got enough songs. I I have to go back and look at the tape. To make it, and they kind of made one demo, which which I think is quite is actually quite good. Um, and they probably made it about three months before I joined the band. So it was kind of weird. They, you know, they used it to like try to get a couple shows. They maybe only played a few show, like maybe three or four shows before I joined. And then I joined, and like maybe like two months later or three months later, we recorded all those songs again. But now they had kind of new guitar, you know, extra guitar parts. And then in the meantime, some of the songs that those guys had been working on that just didn't make it onto the first demo, we learned how to play better. Mm -hmm. And maybe we wrote a couple more little things. In the meantime so the second demo has a couple more songs Mm -hmm. and the songs from the first one but it's not it's not like it's a full year later or something it's actually fairly i have to take a look at the dates but it's but it's not that long after the first demo Hmm.
1: so who would you say um oh one thing first i guess um this is completely off off topic of that, but uh, it just popped into my head. Did you did you design the uh, cover for *Immaculate Deception*?
3: That is a great question. Um, so the the cover art officially is by a, this guy named Ed Repka, mm-hmm. and and Ed. We wound up with Ed because. Well, it was kind of a weird moment because, you know, it was this moment where the first hardcore bands were, like, uh, affiliating with, like you know, like, bigger record labels. Yeah. And when I say bigger record labels, they really weren't that big, right? Like, it was, like, Profile Records was, like, Mm. not a big record company or, um, you know, Relativity was basically, was more of a distribution company. Mm-hmm. that that started a label because they thought they could kind of, you know, because the metal stuff that they were importing like started to, there started to be metal bands. So they were like, well, we can just like be a label. Mm-hmm. Um, but like they weren't like big labels. so So we were maybe like the fourth or fifth band around New York that kind of wound up on a label. And it was like, I don't know, like the agnostic front, chromags, leeway. Um, I'm drawing a blank. Who else was? Everybody else was kind of putting out their own records. Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe sick of, Maybe I'm not sure if sick of it all had kind of wound up on a label yet. So it was like a big, you know, like before that, you just design, you just did everything yourself because. Because how else are you going to do it? Yeah. You know?
4: mm-hmm.
3: um, so once we had a label, then we had to be like, okay. They were like, well, who do you want to do the cover art? <laughs> I'm like, what? <laughs> um, so uh, now I'm going to draw a blank on names. Sean uh, 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 Taggart. Sean Taggart oh, had just yeah. done like cover art for like Agnostic Front. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he had done he had done a cover for Crumb Suckers mm-hmm. I'm not sure if the
1: didn't he do Power and Pain sucker. from Whiplash is that the same guy yeah exactly yeah. okay I know, I know. he was
3: kind of like cartoony and weird yeah and and we were like I don't know it's like we really liked Sean but we were like well then we're gonna just seem like it's a genre you know like mm-hmm. the yeah the Sean cartoon style so one of the reasons we were really excited about being on Combat Relativity was they, it's I got this, my facts might be scrambled on a lot of this, but um, they were the distributor or the label on the Megadeth uh, piece sells, but who's buying mm-hmm. thing. And like that album was like that album, you know, we were a hardcore band, but that album, like the guitar. P- the guitar sounds and all that stuff was like, holy shit. Mm-hmm. That's like amazing.
4: Mm-hmm.
3: So I think Ed Repka had done that piece, "Piece sells who's buying cover. And if I'm not mistaken, Randy Burns had produced it. Mm-hmm. And so we wound up with like, they were like, well, who do you want to produce and who do you want to make the album cover? Or we like, well, get the guy who had that who made those guitar sounds, because that's like insanely good, right? Yeah. Like we kind of liked Peace Cell's Who's Buying better than we liked Metallica, better than we liked kind of anybody that was really caring about their guitar sounds. Yeah. So so we got uh, we got him, and then we were like, well, let's work with Ed Repka. And Dave Bett was the art director at Relativity. And he said, "Well, okay. Like, what? What do you think it should be like?" And so, I had designed it. I was like the designer of the T-shirts
4: mm-hmm.
3: for the. Well, just because I kind of took it on myself to do that, and um, and so we gave Ed a. Uh, we gave Ed a T-shirt, well, probably the first T-shirt that I had made for Ludicrous, which was this cartoon of Alfred E. Newman holding up a giant cross and, um, and on top of the cross was like a, a funny hand. I can't remember. It was just a fist with wings and, you know, it was like meant to be super, super good. Maybe he had a crown of thorns thorns on his head or whatever. Mm-hmm. It was kind of meant to be really goofy. So, so Ed got that and then what he did was, he he basically made the whole thing in response to that. But of course, the character becomes more like, instead of becoming this goofy character, becomes like this Charles Manson meets Tommy Christ kind of character. Yeah. <laughs> also, it was like, he had this crazy pink and purple color scheme, which where... Like, I'm not sure we liked it or disliked it, but I think we were just completely shocked that like it was like a, a thrash album with a pink cover. They're you know? <laughs> <laughs> we like, holy shit, what is this? <laughs> um, and, you know, like, Ed Repka's style is sort of like, he's sort of like a hyper-realist. Mm. Uh, you know, like, everything looks like a paint, you know, it's not like a, car- a funny cartoon style or whatever. Yeah. or a scary monster style. So um, that was kind of really, you know, it was like, oh, wow, that's kind of really different, like, when we finally saw the cover. Uh, but we didn't go through a process where we saw sketches or we had – we pretty much gave stuff to Dave, and then Dave talked, commissioned Ed, and then basically we just got it back, and then basically, here's your cover. <laughs> here's
0: oh, wow. Cover. And,
3: we're like, okay. and we're like, okay, let's do it. <laughs> We didn't really know how to be on a record label, you know.
1: Yeah. Um. I think I remember being a kid and and seeing. I think the, I didn't. I hadn't heard Ludacris before, but I saw that record in the store and I bought it because of <laughs> the artwork, which I always did back then. Um, and it's still a great cover. And I remember being like blown away by this is this band's kind of in the hardcore genre but it's a lot of other things too and like the quality of the songs and the writing and the production like was incredible and i think it still holds up now
3: yeah yeah i mean like well i mean production wise randy did a really super job like you know It didn't wind up anything like uh megadeth of course (laughs) (laughs) thank god yeah (laughs) yeah. (laughs) i think yeah megadeth is great but like you know like we can't play like those guys and uh but but he managed to get like he managed to get it to sound like us and Mm -hmm. and he managed to get it to sound like intense Mm -hmm. um and then, yeah, it's a good question, like, where where diversity or the mixture of stuff came from, like, I think we had a, a sense that we were, you know, we were, um, you know, we're not exactly, like, uh, in-format what was emerging as a kind of like a hardcore, a hardcore style or hardcore genre still like in like 1985, like I feel like maybe I was um, not paying close attention, but I feel like this, the things that became like, like style, like the, um, the core of being a hardcore band, like wasn't as, wasn't as prevalent. Like there was still, a lot of diversity in terms of what people did that was still considered kind of hardcore. Mm-hmm. And I don't know, maybe, maybe because we were kind of from long Island and we weren't like, uh, you know, in the mix as much as bands that were in New York. Like we felt like that, that was a, you know, it was like, Hey, let's throw some of this shit in there. And mm-hmm. like some of that, and like, this would be cool. Like, I don't think anybody was thinking like, Oh, uh, we should, We shouldn't do that because that's like what like some (laughs) that'll be off-putting to somebody or that'll be inappropriate or or weird or something we just kind of put together whatever seemed like it was uh, like it was good Mm -hmm. and I, i had this conversation with somebody else too there's something really nice that you know like some of the songs were were still these kind of early songs that al and mark wrote and then there was a whole period where Tommy kind of wrote stuff together with with Alan Mark. And then then Chuck was in the mix. So Chuck was like contributing riffs and things to songs. And then I joined the band. And then we had, you know, I wrote some stuff with Tommy and wrote some stuff with the other guys. And then in between the CBGB's demo and Immaculate Deception, Mark Cannabraki, the first guitar player, left and we got another guitar player named Joe Butcher and Joe kind of brought in a totally different thing. So I think there's like like there's one song on the first album called Thinking of You mm-hmm. that that basically Joe just kind of brought in. I think he just brought in a whole song and Tommy put lyrics to it. But in some ways it kind of for me it works because there's a lot of like There's a lot of different people contributing stuff to it, but it still kind of reads as a band, but a band with like a lot of different approaches or shades or stuff.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Starts Sonata Number Three by Scatterbrain. Did you guys collectively decide as as a band to to do the cover songs you did, or to do the the, the classical pieces that you would include, or was that one person bringing that stuff in?
3: That's a good question. Right, that, that it starts on um, on Power Trip album. Mm. So. So, you know, like Mark was a pretty, was a pretty, um, you know, he was a punk rock guitar player.
4: Mm-hmm.
3: You know, it was like, like flail, a lot of attitude, you know, kind of like um, at attitude first. And, and, and um, Joe was more like a, um, was more like a metal guitar player. You know, he was more like, if he probably, and maybe he would, he'll say I'm kind of totally wrong, but like, I think his favorite band at the time was like trouble,
4: uh-huh.
3: you know, like kind of like gloom, gloom, uh, doom kind of metal type stuff.
4: Mm-hmm.
3: Then when, after Joe left, we wound up with Paul, Paul Nieder. And, and Paul was, you know, he was like, uh, he had gone to school for music and he, uh, you know, he, like, gave guitar lessons to pay the bills, and he had played in, like, some prog rock bands. So so all of a sudden, Paul and I could have these conversations that were sort of about music in different ways than basically we could with uh, Ludacris 1.0. Mm-hmm. That's not to say it was better or it was kind of worse, but, like, we could both play, like, melodic lines or we could do whatever. Mm-hmm. So... I think we always would play like little funny songs like somewhere in the set whether it was you know like some kind of joke song or whatever but at some point we thought well let's include the classical song from the bug from one of the bugs bunny things and um, and we could rough it out but but Paul actually had the skills to like do the arrangement you know like not just like by ear but he was like okay this is switching from this key to this key. So we're going to arrange it for two guitars. Let's do it like this. And, you know, so we could, we could not just like, we could do it, um, not just like, Hey, let's just fucking do it. You know, like (laughs) stick it out there, Mm -hmm. but we could actually try and do a good job at it, uh, at the same time, which all of a sudden, which to us was pretty fun. Mm -hmm. So I think it's really that power trip moment where where we we could actually start um, doing stuff that was complex that made us want to want to do it and and kind of do some goofy stuff that uh, that just yeah was maybe kind of also a little bit off topic right <laughs> yeah, yeah. The the other stuff like Last Train to Clarksville, I remember like we we put Last Train to Clarksville in the set because I knew how to play it. Like that's not a very good reason, but like (laughs) at some some point I was like, we, we were just at a rehearsal and I was like, hey, do you guys know Last Train to Clarksville? And Tommy was like, yeah, yeah, the monkeys, the monkeys, they're great, you know, like fake tv band like <laughs> that's what we should be like you know or something like that and then everybody's like yeah yeah that's a cool song let's play it really fast and then we played it and then somehow we just kept playing it and it went on the record eventually <laughs> i was like completely random um
1: i remember <laughs> i remember hearing that when i first heard the record and hearing that on there and i wasn't a monkeys fan but i definitely enjoyed that cover it's, it's really good.
3: <laughs> you know, and I lived in Nashville for a while. There is a, like, there is a Clarksville, and there's a train that goes to Clarksville. So it's like, um, even though the monkeys were probably in Los Angeles, I think it's a yes. reference. You know, I think a lot of songwriting references have to do with stuff that are around Nashville as well. So, yeah. But what does that have to do with Long Island or Ludacris? Like, pretty much... <laughs> pretty
1: much nothing you know. <laughs> 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 so so between Ludacris and scatterbrain you that I know of you've done a, a monkey's cover um, a some classical stuff um cheechin Chong cover right that was really cool I thought
3: right right right
1: and um and then down with the ship had a ton of riffs in it from you know the most popular songs in the world the rock songs anyways
3: right rock songs um, there was like a little bit of rock box in one of the song. you know like run dmc's
1: yeah rock box in one of the tracks um how did did you guys have to get permission to do any of that stuff and <laughs> and and did any of the artists like were they mad about that did they give you shit about using their riffs or anything
3: like that after the fact you know, we, we never cleared the rock box thing. Uh-huh. Like, so it's kind of, it does, it does, because it doesn't appear as a, a track. It doesn't yeah. appear anywhere. Um, I think the Rossini Il ba- Babiere di Sevilla is mm-hmm. public domain. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. we didn't have to pay anybody that we did have to credit Boyce and Hart, who were the authors of last train to Clarksville, mm-hmm. um, down with the ship we just we had a discussion about it and it was like the lawyers at relativity were like just like if anybody complains we'll just deal with it later (laughs) um so so they were just like just pretend it never happened whatever and (laughs) um and we never did anything about that so uh yeah nobody's really nobody really complained I mean, there's other stuff. I mean, we used to play other songs, too. There's a, there's a tape, there's a demo somewhere of us doing, we used to do Bon Jovi songs once in a while because (laughs) they were so ridiculous. Um, So there's some demo of, I think we released a demo of Tommy doing like a karaoke version of Dead or Alive (laughs) on like at some county fair where you could like record a, record a karaoke version and take the (laughs) tape with you. And I think we put that out as a release. Uh, That's Um, great. We did, I think we did a Zappa song or two. Um, We used to do like, we used to throw a motorhead song in if the night, you know, it depended on what kind of a show it was. Mm -hmm. But uh, I think we used to do Kenny Rogers, um, the gambler. Oh, nice! At some point, <laughs> you have to really ask, what, like, why, like, why those tracks? Like, they they probably were just something that somebody was singing or humming, and then they just came into the set for a while, just as like a fun, weird, goofy thing to break things up. Um, we did. We we also. Did. Most people don't know this. We also did a soundtrack piece, a version of "Mama Said Knock You Out" by LL Cool J. Oh wow! That was in a film called Encino Man.
1: Oh yeah, <laughs>
3: with with Brent, Brendan Fraser played the lead. You know, he played like a a, a good looking guy who had been frozen in ice for a while, and he like comes out of ice, and he's in like 1980s, <laughs> and it's like a, it's sort of like a goofy 80s film
1: wasn't paulie shore in that too
3: i i would almost guarantee paulie shore was in that. <laughs> yeah.
1: he had to be right
3: <laughs> <laughs> if he's not he should be yeah, <laughs> yeah paulie shore that's totally the era and and you know like nobody ever for that like we didn't do the rights clearance ourselves they just kind of the the film company kind of dealt with that, and, uh, but yeah, it's like it's also very weird. I think the only place you can like you could probably find it online, but it was on like the soundtrack album of Encino Man.
1: Hmm. Um, I'm gonna check <laughs> it out. Yeah, that's a that's a weird one. <laughs> <laughs> so you played at uh, Milwaukee Metal Fest, didn't you?
3: Yeah, ninety yeah I have to look and see what year it was.
1: Um, what do you think of that returning?
3: I think it's amazing. Yeah, oh my God. I mean, that was like a super cool um, a super cool cool event. Also, you know it was kind of weird for us because we most of the time we weren't we're, like we were still ludicrous at that moment. Mm-hmm. And so we weren't really we weren't considered a metal band. Um, and we were kind of, or we're not really considered a hardcore band. We were kind of like a crossover band or like we would get considered like bands like DRI Mm -hmm. or corrosion of conformity at the time. Mm -hmm. So it was super, super cool to go and play like a full on metal thing. Like the crowd was kind of really good. And um, the other bands were like, you know, they were more hardcore, like, serious metal bands.
1: Mm-hmm. Do you... Were... Was Ludicrous and, and Scatterbrain <clears throat> accepted by both sides of, like, hardcore people and metal people?
3: Yeah. I, I mean, my memory is, of course, clouded. But, um, yeah, I feel like... Yeah, why not? Like, mm-hmm. I feel like people were just. In, I feel like we were really into it, and most of the time, like the crowds were super great.
4: Mm-hmm.
3: You know, we we played a lot of the time with other bands that you know were were one hundred percent considered metal. Like we played tons of shows with Nuclear Assault, mm-hmm. and we played. Um, like I can probably look at old flyers and see like there were bands that we kind of play, or even like Agnostic Front was kind of in a more y phase you wouldn't call them metal but like there was more kind of speed pedaling and like that kind of vibe of things so um i I feel like we got a i feel like we got pretty good like nobody was like boo you well if anybody was like boo you suck like i didn't notice uh i'm sure somebody screamed boo you suck but uh (laughs) You know, not that it matters, <laughs> but we were pretty much self-contained, you know, like we we're so excited to play most of the time that, um, that even if the audience was a little uh, thinking like, well, we're, we're out of the genre I like best," like that. I think we we're most of the time we we're able to win people over.
4: Mm-hmm.
3: I think we were just like a weird enough band that like, if you liked Ludacris, then you just kind of liked us.
4: Yeah, yeah, you
3: know it was like, like, and if if you kind of liked the album, you wor- you weren't even worried what what genre it was. Yes. Or if you had that pink album, maybe you just had no idea what the hell it was supposed to be. Anyway. <laughs> it's just like I like uh, heavy metal. I like uh, I like metal, and I like that band with the pink album, whatever the hell that is. <laughs> <laughs>
1: So, what um, I think a lot of I've heard a lot of people say like that Ludacris became Scatterbrain, but that's really not the case, right? It's kind of two different bands. Well, there's similar members, right? But there's a clear divide in yeah. your guys' head, right? Between the bands.
3: Well, th- this is one of the great, I mean, this is like one of the nice things that like people are still interested in. There's. There's a whole bunch of interviews that say the exact <laughs> the exact opposite thing, um, and it depends on who the band was talking to at what point in time, <laughs> you know. Uh, so, <laughs> what happened from my point <laughs> from my point of view, anyway? Mm-hmm. Is, you know, we did the Power Trip album, and we, and we basically members were kind of in and out of the band. We wound up. Paul stayed in the band, which is great because he was writing great songs, and we all got along really great. And I think when we first went to do a power trip tour in Europe, our the bass player we had couldn't go, so we w- so we got a, a bass player that Paul knew, which was Guy Branya mm-hmm. and uh, Bragna, and um, sorry, my wife's Italian, so I slip into attempting some bad Italian (laughs) pronunciation of this stuff sometimes. Um, So Guy kind of played with us on that. So it was like Tommy, me, Paul, Guy, and Dave Miranda. And then when we got back, I think we had another string of shows and Dave couldn't do them. So So Guy and Paul knew another guy named Mike Boyko. And Mike joined the band. And so we kind of played a whole string of kind of power trip shows with the lineup that would become Scatterbrain. And of course, we're constantly rehearsing because we didn't have serious jobs or whatever, you know, like just to pay the bills. Mm. So we, we would rehearse and we started writing new songs. So it's interesting you mentioned Milwaukee Metal Fest because... If you go back and you look at clips from Mil- Milwaukee Metal Fest, it's 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 basically scatterbrain, but playing power trip power trip songs, hmm. and I think there's like one or two songs that would wind up on "Here Comes Trouble." Hmm. So, in some ways, Ludacris just kept writing material and writing material, and and we wrote a third album, and what happened was. In the meantime, you know, the world keeps changing. Two two people kind of wound up going to, well, our first album was on Combat. Then Combat shifted, and our second album was on Combat Core. Mm
4: -hmm.
3: It was like they were already getting more like hardcore-oriented and diversifying. Then they diversified more, and they started another sub label that was called In Effect Records. And that's when like Howie Abrams came. I think Howie Abrams was already working there, but he like became like a direct co-director of the label. And Steve Martin, who who was playing in Agnostic Front, is also a very smart guy and now is like a, a music manager and a public relations guy, was also kind of one of the people who are like directing in effect records. So Power Trip as an album, it basically it sold very little and the record company wasn't that excited about it like they didn't give us money to support it like there weren't ads you know i think there were like two ads in the beginning in like metal mania magazine and then so we were just kind of like booking our own shows and slogging it out on power trip stuff and i think the understanding was that combat core records might or might not make the third Ludicrist album mm-hmm. so we're like okay well whatever who cares we'll get another label and you know just keep doing our thing and so what started happening was was ha- at some point howie and i think steve came to some of our rehearsals because we were kind of writing the, you know we had written the songs for the next album and they were like holy shit we like the new stuff is great. Like we absolutely love it for us. I think we just thought it was like, thought we were doing the same thing. You know, we're just like trying to write some better songs, whatever. Mm -hmm. But, but we had a different rhythm section, you know, and like probably when we wrote power trip, like Paul was new in the band. And so Paul was like more comfortable and he's contributing more stuff. And we're, stretching out a bit and and instead of mike walters and and dave miranda who were both super great we had uh we had guy and uh and mike who were both really really strong players Mm -hmm. so and plus we had gotten we had been in the studio twice so we had gotten better at rehearsing like like we knew we had to decide on tempos and build click tracks and you know, like, we had some production chops by then. Yeah. And and so Howie and Steve were really excited about the album. And then they were like, well, maybe this should be on our new label called In Effect. And we're like, yeah, 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 yeah. So we kind of, we figured out the, I mean, this is a whole story in itself, like, who produced it and how we kind of did that. We kind of wound up recording and producing with, with uh, Tom Soares. And Paul took a kind of stronger kind of role in um, in kind of directing stuff, which was like super good. And when the recordings were like coming together, there was like the distribution landscape of the United States was changing. This com- The main distribution for a lot of the stuff was this company called Peaches. Hmm. And Peaches was this Christian-owned um like distributor in that like ran or like supplied all the record stores in the South part, Southern part of the United States. And somehow they got a preview and decided that they weren't going to distribute anything, any album that was called (laughs) ludicrous. I mean, like, we're like, and so we're like, well, fuck them. Like, who cares? Right. Like, (laughs) like the, you know, like how, how he's telling us this. And we're like, so what? And he's like, yeah, well, except like, 70% 70% of you say your sales are there so it's up to you guys you know like do you want to you want to consider a name change or you want to say fuck it and like you know we just have to go a different way and so we kind of thought about it for a while and then we kind of decided to just kind of do it and make it into a thing
4: mm-hmm.
3: you know so um so the record company held a um in effect held a competition to think up new names and we came up with new names. And I think we just thought of it as like an extension of like just some way to be able to continue the band and keep going. Um, but then over time and, you know, like maybe, maybe you'll get Tommy on and he'll say the exact opposite, <laughs> which, <laughs> which I think is good, right? Like there's no, there's no real truth to anybody's perception on these things. It's just like what I remember versus what other people remember. Mm -hmm. You know, there's been a lot of interviews where, you know, like the people that really got into scatterbrain weren't necessarily Ludacris fans. So just, I think we just had a habit of kind of saying a different thing, like in every single interview. Um, (laughs) And also it gave us like some momentum to say like, it's a brand new band and we got yeah. this going on because as far as, you know, if you saw a whole bunch of live shows, you'd be like, yeah, but those are the guys from Ludacris." Like yeah. I just saw them last week and like when they were <laughs> Ludacris, and like, it's the same guys in this man. Um, but if you were just buying albums, it's a totally different lineup than on the power trip album. So it does seem like a totally different. Um, and the production values are, 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 you know, like, uh, we did Power Trip with Tom Soares down in, uh, not Tom Soares, sorry, Tom Morris, down at Morris Sound in Tampa.
4: Mm-hmm.
3: And it's definitely a more, um, it's definitely a more metal sounding thing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I, honestly, I think we could have taken half the tracks on Power Trip and, like, developed them and produced them differently. And they would have sounded a lot more like Scatterbrain. Mm. But um, but if you're a Ludacris fan and not a Scatterbrain fan, <laughs> then basically you're like, well, I'm glad you didn't. You know? <laughs> uh, I like both. I think there's yeah, yeah It's like different people have different you know different yeah. tastes in it.
1: I mean, I knew Ludacris first, but um, I do like both bands. Cool. Don't make me kick.
3: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah i go back and forth i mean like there are points where i was like this is great and then i w- would go back and listen to the Christ stuff and be like oh, i really like that like maybe then maybe we should have kind of stayed a bit more like that but you know like you gotta just keep going forward yeah. like even if those even if forward is into forward always means change yeah you know
0: what was your favorite album to record
2: Hmm.
3: yeah I mean maybe the first one just because it was like because we were like practically peeing ourselves with excitement like that we actually got to do it Yeah, you know um, and it just seemed sort of it seemed sort of magical uh, we were absolutely not in control of anything <laughs> <laughs> you know it was like we're not that skilled at anything. I think by Power Trip, we we understood more what we wanted, but we weren't necessarily that good at getting it. Like, so it was like, we worked hard, and, but I think we were a little bit frustrated. Yeah. And then I think, like, I think by by Here Comes Trouble, like, as a band, we had gotten like we kind of knew enough and knew how to work with were you know we had good people to work with that it was like that in some ways it was a lot of work and a lot, a lot of compromises and figuring stuff out but it was like more adult and i kind of liked the part that wasn't so adult it was just more like
2: woohoo! <laughs> don't this we is all amazing! <laughs> this
3: <is> so amazing <laughs> Yes. Just like pure enthusiasm. You know I mean? Like, like live albums have that vibe, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Where they're just like, you kind of you do them and they, and they have mistakes in them and they're, the songs are at the wrong speeds and you can't hear the vocals in the second verse. <laughs> but like there's a, there's a thing you get in your gut when you listen to them. Yeah. And, uh, and I feel like there's, there's a little bit more of that on the first, the first Ludacris album.
1: So did you, did you leave scatterbrain and then go to Nashville or were, were those two things unrelated?
3: Uh, well, I, I guess everything's kind of related. Like I mm-hmm. was, we had just got finished. Well, a whole bunch of stuff happened. We, we made uh, the scamboogery album and we, we toured around, but it was a funny thing where, you know, like when we went over to Electra Warner Brothers Records, we had two and guys who were like, you know, in love with us. Um, and they were like our champions at the label because, you know, it was a bigger label and there's more people and, mm-hmm. you know, you have to have somebody who's like your fan. And so we went over there, we kind of went through the process of recording. And then, um, then those two, two guys, both got fired so by the time our record sort of came out there was like nobody who was a, ludic- a scatterbrain fan at Electra records oh man so peaches so wasn't behind that were they <laughs> yeah we just found ourselves like with <laughs> like like wow we should we really should have stayed where we were mm-hmm, right mm-hmm. it seemed like it seemed like it was this big move. Like we'd get more support and we'd get more exposure. Mm-hmm. It was actually the exact opposite. Mm-hmm. So, so we did what we could with that, you know, like supporting that record. And then because our guys had kind of left, then Electro Warner Brothers didn't want to make the next record. Mm-hmm. So we were like, okay, you don't want to make it because it didn't sell that well, but it didn't sell that well. Cause you kind of didn't, like it to begin with you know it was just like oh wow we got caught in you know we got caught a little bit in that um in the stuff that everybody always complains about
2: Mm -hmm.
3: yeah so like okay so we were trying to kind of regroup ourselves and like figure out what we were gonna do next and i think everybody had you know a little bit of life going on like people were starting to get more serious relationships or kind of whatever and I had a, a girlfriend I was seeing in in um, Los Angeles and who had, so to give you a time reference point, the, the, the Rodney King stuff and the LA riots had just happened. Mm-hmm. And at that point, my girlfriend decided she was from Nashville. She said, LA's like, just like went from being a happy place to like a place that it just feels like people are angry or the mm-hmm. vibe is just freaking me out. So I'm going to go back to Nashville. Mm-hmm. And I had gone down to visit her a couple times and I was like, wow, Nashville's like, it's a town where everybody plays music, but it's like, it's almost like a college town in some ways at that point in time it was like cheap to live. Everybody liked music. There are probably other towns like um, at different points in time that are like that. I was, like, so super amazing. So then we were just kind of deciding what we were going to do in terms of, like, do we look for a new manager? Do we kind of put stuff out ourselves? And I'm completely not going to remember the exact circumstances, but um, I feel like we weren't at a moment where everybody was going to push forward into a, you know, it wasn't like everybody agreed that we should bootstrap and kind of go for it. Mm -hmm. It was maybe more the idea that we should get a little bit of perspective. And, and I felt like, I felt like eh, I might be on a different page. I think I'm on a slightly different page than everybody else. So, so I was like, well, I think I'm going to, I'm just going to go do some other stuff, you know, because I think everybody else had relationships like, uh, and were like living with other people that were like in all in New York. And mine was like, my girlfriend was in Nashville. So it was like, well, okay, I think I'm going to go do that. So I just kind of, I just literally uh, moved down to Nashville. Uh, I put my stuff, I put my stuff. I remember having like a conversation and uh, with the guys and then like, maybe the next week or a couple days later, I just like put a bag of clothes in my car and like I drove to Nashville. Oh, wow. Um, Because it was like, when you're a musician, it's not like you have that much structure around you.
0: Mm -hmm. you Yeah, that's true.
3: And I I went down to Nashville and, um, and I kind of met up with a bunch of guys down there who, who also had lost their record deal. And we started playing together. And then that, turned into a band in within like a couple months and uh and then i wound up playing with those guys for about maybe almost 10 years and it was like super super nice too because it was like it was coming from a different place Mm. but um yeah but it just felt like almost like just discovering what was great about music all over again you know like going back to the basics and um Mm -hmm. booking shows and you know like after being in a tour box and going to play in other countries and kind of doing all this stuff it was kind of nice to be like call up the club in huntsville alabama (laughs) and (laughs) book a thursday night show and then go just kind of like have the band go around and kind of find cheap places to record and make recordings and play shows Mm -hmm. and um yeah it was super fun was that stone deep yeah yeah Mm -hmm. that was the band's name was stone deep Mm -hmm. and the guys had the other guys had been in this band called the hardcore Mm -hmm. with like the c-o-r-p-s and they put out one album that was produced by um jam master j and and tom niccolo from the Butcher Brothers in Philadelphia,
4: huh.
3: and they like they got signed. They're put on like produced by Jam Master J, Put on Ice T and Body Count's Cop Killer tour. Oh wow. and just like in like two minutes, they went from like being a band to like having like videos on MTV and like a national tour with like Primus and uh, all these guys. They did one sort of round around the country and then their record label, their manager, their booking agent all dropped them with no explanation. Oh, wow. Oh wow. And I was like, well, what's up with that? I was like, are you guys like meth heads? Or like, <laughs> 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 did you murder somebody? You know, like what's going to And basically, of course, none of those things, like there just was a, there probably was a case of like, money not going where it needed to and then everybody sort of bailed at a certain point and um and so we put together like the stuff that you know the guys maybe they had six guys in the band and four of the guys wanted to continue five of the guys wanted to continue and so we we started putting together recordings and like it was great like they were absolutely fantastic performers you know like good songwriters, good musicians. And so I could bring like all the stuff I kind of knew from, from doing stuff, but, it, but we weren't playing like thrash or kind of metal.
1: Mm-hmm. It
3: was more like maybe the first stuff was kind of metally with like, like, like maybe sounded like onyx or, um, or like raise in hell period run DMC Mm-hmm. kind of like on top of me- more metal-y stuff. And then it kind of became a little more like hard rock with kind of different uh, rap stuff over the over a period of time. Hmm. Yeah, yeah, it was like super fun. And we kind of, we toured around, we made like maybe like six albums. Uh, we mm-hmm. won every award an unsigned band could win in the United States, including from the grammy foundation and all these crazy things in nashville um and then you know, like no record label ever like even though like the style of music we were doing was incredibly popular like n- we never wound up with a record label so in in 2000 we just decided to put it on hold because the guys were starting to have kids, and mm. you know, like, you just you just kind of get to a certain age where you're like, well, I kind of gotta I gotta get this promotion because, like, I gotta get my kid into like <laughs> 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 I actually have to pay for my kid's school. So, so we put things on hold, and then I went and did other stuff, and um, and then probably like about a year ago, I started playing again with the Stone Deep guys, and we started. Mm re-releasing some of the material that um, that people had you know like that basically if you were in Nashville you heard it over and over and over again mm-hmm. but if you were outside of Nashville or that general area like most people never heard it so mm-hmm. we're just kind of releasing it almost as if it's brand new brand new records
1: let's take a short break and listen to Faces of Death by Stone Deep <laughs> See the um. It looks like uh, by the time this airs, you'll have a an eight-track edition of of Nashville released, which is pretty cool.
3: <laughs> yeah, the other guys think I'm crazy for doing an eight-track. Oh, that's um, cool. I like it. I said blue blue ray blue ray disc is next. <laughs> and then, uh, they <laughs> are gonna do reel-to-reel tapes, nice. and then Edison cylinder. After that, <laughs> that's cool. But it's funny, like like Lou Reed, Lou Reed's estate just released a whole bunch of his stuff on a track.
1: Mm-hmm.
3: It's like, yeah. The question is, well, who the hell has an a track?
1: Yeah, I know. Um, I know some people are really into collecting them.
3: Really? Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Funny. I went and bought one on eBay so I could check. So I could check the um, manufacturing, made sure they did it right. Huh. Um, but I, st- I still, I don't have a turntable these days, which is really—you'll um, probably hang up on me once I say that. <laughs>
1: no, <laughs> a lot of people don't. That's—I mean, I still love vinyl. We both do, but um, you know, with modern technology, it's so convenient just to, you know get on your phone and stream whatever you want
3: yeah yeah it's funny. like we released stuff i think we first we just kind of like put stuff on like facebook and instagram and like people were just able to hear it and then we put it on like Bandcamp, and and nobody downloaded anything mm. and then um, and then we kind of put it on youtube oh no then we put videos on like instagram and we got some people to listen to it and then we made a YouTube channel. And then once we made a YouTube channel, nobody listened to that, but then people started listening to Instagram more.
2: <laughs> huh. and,
3: then, and then it took forever, but we finally put it on like Spotify and uh, Apple Music. Mm-hmm. And then that started to get some plays and then sag down. Mm-hmm. And then YouTube started back up again. It's like, oh my God it's too crazy to really try and track and understand like what's, uh, yeah, what's behind where people are kind of listening to stuff and moving stuff to. I mean, I know like my wife, she was, like, she just has Spotify on and like, she'll like pick a different thing. She's interested in Like the music isn't as important as the way that she's, li- you know, it's almost like how we used to listen to radio,
4: mm-hmm.
3: you put the radio on and you're like, oh, okay, there's a good show or like, maybe I'll just listen to this crappy rock station today
4: Yeah. yeah. and
3: then I'll tune into some, the cool punk show at 11 PM or whatever. Mm-hmm. But you always were just playing the radio. And I think that's like how people deal with Spotify or Apple music these days. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So I feel like that was a total old man. comment. <laughs> comment <yeah. laughs> I feel like the people use the computer these days. <laughs> like, thanks for that. You know?
1: So, um, I have a question about what, like, when we talk to people, we generally kind of try to collect as much as we can online about who they are. Um, yeah. And, I can you tell us what you do for work because that looks really yeah. cool. But um at first, when I first saw it, I thought, "Oh, he's he does some type of architecture," but it's not that, right? It's uh yeah. can you explain that be- to, like I'm a five year old? <laughs>
3: <laughs> absolutely, Thank absolutely. You. Well, I, if anybody's a five year old, it's me. But uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, well, when I um. When I kind of took a pause from playing music, probably around 2000, i i had been i had been working like in publishing, and then I had worked in Nashville at, at an ad agency, and I kind of was interested in doing what would be considered design, or people would say graphic design, mm-hmm. but uh, graphic design is a weird term because like almost everybody you meet is a graphic designer, mm-hmm. but. Um, but kind of like graphic design, but in a more, you know, like professional setting. So, I went back to I went back to school after playing music, you know, for a long time. I was almost thirty, or maybe I even was thirty.
4: Mm-hmm.
3: I went back to undergrad, and then I went to grad school, and then I got a job in New York for a while, working at a design studio. And I've and basically, I I don't think I understood what a design studio. Kind of did. Mm-hmm. Um, it took me a long time to figure it out. So if it's not clear, you're the same as everybody else because <laughs> it's not clear to anybody. Okay. Um, so basically, design studios just do things like make, um, like they visually design stuff like uh, like identities for companies or they'll design exhibitions. Mm. Um, you know, like like most people think, Oh, like if you go to the, if you go to a particular museum, they're like, well, the museum figures out how to put the graphics on the wall and whatever. Mm -hmm. But actually a lot of the time they hire a design studio to kind of do that, Hmm. to kind of like come up with an idea for it and lay stuff out. Okay. So, so you would do kind of like, you would design books and design posters and design websites and like communication systems. It, it, there's a little bit of marketing involved, but mostly it's making the visual stuff for companies that need visual stuff.
4: Mm-hmm.
3: So I worked for a, um, for a studio here in New York for about six years. And then in 2008, I started my own studio up, which the idea was that I was... I said, I'm not going to work on weekends anymore. And so I, I named the studio monday tuesday wednesday thursday friday (laughs) with the thought that saturday and sunday were missing from the name so like don't call me on saturday or sunday because i'm not going to be here and and because it was so you know i I literally made like a website and like a business card that said monday tuesday wednesday thursday friday you know friday and um i thought wow this is a great name i love it it's like so awkward and you know messed up (laughs) And then the first time I had to call up to make a, to, to get a FedEx package pickup, like the FedEx guy was like, he was like, yeah, just tell me the name of the business. And I was like, <laughs> sure. Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. He was like, Listen, just tell me the name (laughs) of the business. I got into this like verbal argument with the guy. I was like, that's the name. He was like, he was just like, if you don't want to participate, I'm not going to pick up the package. And I was like, but that's the name. It's like a funny name. And he was like, I don't care. You want to make fun of me? You think I'm funny? And I was like, no. (laughs) So (laughs) So then I was like, oh my God, this is like, I'm a, I'm a, design studio that makes up names and makes things for people i just made the worst name <laughs> that you could ever make for myself right <laughs> so then i shortened it to mtwtf and oh, okay. also it's impossible because nobody can pronounce it <laughs> like people are like mz or people, like, people see the wtf and they think that means what the fuck
2: <laughs> and
3: so they're like they're like, oh, call the, what you are from? The what the fuck people? I'm like, what? <laughs> <laughs> so, In some ways it winds up being okay because there's so much misunderstanding and comedy around it that like b- people remember it. Mm. But in terms of it being, you know, like I should have just called it like Acme design studio or, you know, triple A design studio and been the first listing in the
4: oh, yeah. phone
3: book. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> but, but yeah that's kind of what I uh, I do that and then, then I do some teaching once in a while because it's kind of fun hmm. so I teach in like different art programs or, or design programs that basically it's you teach the same thing you do mm-hmm. so it's like you teach people how to make books and websites and stuff like that hmm. and it's pretty fun I mean it's actually in a strange way it's not that different like once you do it for maybe 10 years you can really see the similarities to like making music. Mm-hmm. Initially, it seems like a totally different thing because you're not picking up a guitar or a bass and like yeah, making, you know, like plugging into an awesome tube amp and like making some noise. You're, you're sitting down in silence with a computer, right? Yeah. You're like, ay, ay, ay. I
1: was, I was going to ask you if that, if design kind of fills that void, the creative void from not playing in a band anymore or do you play in a band still
3: yeah like over time it kind of it definitely filled some kind of creative void Mm -hmm. but it didn't really fill the void of like when you play in a band there's just this thing like you're just standing there with another bunch of human beings Mm -hmm. like like making stuff in real time yeah like like
4: like a mandala
3: like being a it's like being an animal and like running down the street with other you know like you're a dog and you're running around with other dogs Mm -hmm. like it feels really really good yeah um and that part's like not really Mm -hmm. really there Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. but i have been you know i mean i have been playing uh playing again with the guys down in nashville Mm -hmm. like we played a couple warm-up shows like under fake names Mm. and um you know getting ready for some album releases and stuff so that's been fun, but yeah, the design stuff—it fi- it fills a creative part, but the but the music thing just does a thing that nothing else does.
1: Yeah, yeah.
3: Maybe like if you raced motorcycles, or you like you did s- like you played f- football or mm-hmm. something—you know—that was like visceral. Mm-hmm. It would feel more like music to me. Mm-hmm. But um, mm-hmm.
1: that makes sense. Um, well, I want you, I want to thank you for taking the time to talk to us.
3: Oh my God. The questions were so good. Oh, like, thank you. I feel like, I feel like if, if anybody could like, I feel like you put together like, like 10 amazing questions well, like right from the first one. <laughs> wow.
1: Well, thank you. We, ha- we still have a bunch of questions left, but we've, we've. Kept you on for (laughs) I don't know over an hour (laughs) 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 now, almost an
3: hour and a half. I'm a talker, you know. Mm,
1: It's been great. It's been great talking. Yeah,
3: nobody has nobody has said Swami, Swami, Swami uh, (laughs) in like since like 1980, (laughs) 83 or something. (laughs) I'm gonna I'm gonna have to send you like a link to like that that the 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 horror planet stuff. Oh, it's pretty. Love to hear it. It's pretty good it's actually kind of aged pretty well
1: we'd love to hear it you know yeah, I was what
3: are you guys what are you guys doing what are you what are you up to I mean obviously this takes a lot of time to kind of put the interviews together and
1: yeah yeah it takes I think we've gotten better at it over time but oh for sure when we first started doing it it was it was consuming a lot of our time
0: like hours and hours <laughs> like and a hours. ridiculous
1: amount <laughs>
3: <laughs> like months and months. And days, oh, it was ridiculous. You know.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I remember the first time we talked about doing a podcast just randomly one weekend night. And then we decided, like, I'd recorded in the past for, uh, like, in bands and stuff that I was in. So I kind of knew how to, you know, record a bit. I'd never done a podcast, but we decided to give it a shot. And the first time was, we were so discouraged. We just went to bed and we were like, through our microphones in the garbage yeah <laughs> <laughs> but I think we were too stubborn and we just kept at it and uh
3: yeah there's a right it's just like I hate my life what, are, yeah. I, what am I doing with yeah. my yeah. life so bad.
1: <laughs> but we meet so many like I mean you know super interesting people and I get to talk to my uh you know people that i listened to in my teens that i never thought i'd talk to like like you and yeah, that's awesome. a lot of other people that's and,
3: super awesome yeah yeah and then get a sense of like just like humanity through it you know it's like yeah like for me that was the that was like a key thing about about the early hardcore days was like um you know when people have made postings about this later it was like it wasn't a sense of being competitive like I'm gonna like my band's gonna be better than your band or whatever it's just the sense that basically anybody could put together a band and, and like like I remember saying to somebody or I remember just saying to this guy like man I want to uh, like I'd love to play in one of these bands and this guy who was my friend he was like oh well I'm gonna audition for a band but like maybe they need a guitar player too do you want me to ask him if you can go? Yeah. And I was like, yeah, yeah, I want to <laughs> do that. Right. Mm-hmm. I was like, and then I wind up playing guitar in that band and, and he didn't wind up being the singer, but I don't think he didn't care. Mm-hmm. You know, like it was just like, it was just being part of the mix and like getting involved with people and, um, and getting to do stuff that seemed really cool to you. Mm-hmm. And I think that, that spirit of, like, talking to people or just, like, checking out what people are doing and sharing it with people is, like, pretty amazing. Yeah. Absolutely.
0: And the community that comes along with it.
3: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Exactly.
0: Um, okay, so I have, I have a favor. <laughs> yeah. We have, we always end the episode, um, we have a box of nonsense questions, and yeah, we just like excellent. to end on a on a light note, so are you ready for your, your nonsense question? Yes. Okay. You are a con man who can infiltrate any profession. Which job do you pretend to be an expert at?
3: Oh, I like that. Um, <laughs> well, if I'm going to be a con man... I'm going to, I'm just going to be in finance then. You know? <laughs> just like, like, in other words, there's no reason to be a con man unless it's
0: Lucernev. lucrative.
3: <laughs> <laughs> like, so if you're a con man in like a pet store, like, you know, like how does that go?
0: Right. You know? Right.
3: You'd be, like, be like, well, this is a, uh, no, that's not a puppy. That's a turtle. <laughs> <laughs> you know, like, well, what? What are you actually conning people for? Right. You know, it's like yeah. Stakes are so low, so so I think I'd I'd try and go with something where you kind of slip out the back door with a with a um, satchel sat- sat- full. <laughs> yeah. It's pretty unimagin- I think my answer is pretty unimaginative though, but, but I think that's what I would do.
1: <laughs> that's a great answer.
0: Do you have any over there?
1: I I do have one question. that I do have some nonsense here, but there's one question that um. That I thought about earlier that I wanted to ask, and um, I had read that uh. That the concept of you can't have fun came from something that your mother said.
3: <laughs> yeah, 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 um, yeah. So, you know, in like early days, it was like. I guess this is everybody like, like if you're, if you were like Mick Jagger and, um, and um, the other members of the stones, right? Like Mick Jagger would just call up your home, your, your house and be like, uh, excuse me, Mrs. Richards, is Keith there? Mm-hmm. You know, like, and then basically get on the phone. So Tommy used to, I can't remember. Like, I think I spent more time with Tommy when I first joined the band. Cause we were like, figuring out how to reproduce cassettes and we were figuring out how to, you know, like do a whole bunch of this. I think we're both kind of into that as well. Mm-hmm. And we lived pretty close by. Um, he was in Farmingdale and I was in big. So, and we would go out and drink beer or go to parties and stuff. And, um, and so Tommy used to call my house, ha- call my house and, of course, my I lived in my parents' basement, and so my mom would always answer the phone, <laughs> and um, and then Tommy would come over, and of course, my mom would would answer the door, and my mom also was like really pretty amazing because mm. there were points where when we were on tour, my mother would do the merch, you know, like oh, nice. sell the merchandise oh, through that's the mail awesome. or, you know, Yeah, like we had parents that were, and and Tommy's mother also was like. Like, they put up with a lot of stuff and really helped helped out. But at some point, you know, like, my parents, I think Tommy's parents were were pretty chilled out. You know, like, they were kind of, they were happy that he was doing stuff that he liked. My parents were, like, you know, had sort of bootstrapped up from, like, a a pretty low income. Not that anybody was out of being low income, Mm -hmm. but my parents were more anxious, you know, And so, at some point, my mom cornered Tommy and was like, "Gave him the twisted sister. What are you going to do with your life?" (laughs) Kind of treatment, you know? Like, what are you intending to do? And and Tommy, I think to this day, he still says like, "I'm just trying to do some stuff that's fun," or like, "I'm trying to have some fun." (laughs) And um, and my my mother had said something like, "You know, you know, Thomas." Life is not meant to be fun. You know, like it's not meant to be fun. You got to earn your way, and you got to do some real work. To you know, like nothing's handed to you. A kind of Protestant. We were Roman Catholic, but it's like you give them some heavy Protestant uh, work ethic kind mm-hmm. of thing.
4: Mm-hmm.
3: And this, so <laughs> you know, Tommy never said, "Hey, I'm going to write a song about what your mom said or whatever." <laughs> like, it's just kind of. I think it just kind of showed up as the, as the, as
2: <laughs>
3: like the song was called something else. And then maybe it was like, so this is the funny thing. There are definitely some songs that had other lyrics to them that turned into different things. Mm-hmm. And so there was a song which might've been Fire at the Firehouse at the beginning that, that was called is Glen Home. And basically they would be like and it would be like, hey, Mrs. Cummings, is Glenn home? And then basically, I didn't even know if there was a punchline to that. (laughs) But then somehow that morphed into you can't maybe I'm mixing up the early version of you can't have fun with that, because it became you can't have fun, Mm -hmm. which was like which was like a direct response to my mom and tell, this, like, <laughs> tell your mom thanks for writing the, <laughs> writing the words or whatever and then even funnier because we were lucky enough to have you know like our idols at that point like um, come and sing background vocals on the um, on the Immaculate Deception album
4: mm-hmm.
3: but the song that they sang on was basically You Can't Have Fun which was the my mother's song <laughs> um so we had like you know eddie from leeway and roger from agnostic front and john Connolly from nuclear assault like mm-hmm. singing these parts you know like <laughs>
4: <That's
3: singing. great. laughs> it actually pretty it's actually pretty surreal and <laughs> and weird in a good way yeah did your mom hear and it Tom- uh i'm not sure i ever like i'm not sure i ever told her it was going to <laughs> I, think, I think she i think she would have thought it was fun. Uh, i mean i'll talk to her this weekend so i'll i'll tell her it came up and she'll think she'll think it's funny oh that's great um,
2: <laughs>
3: <laughs> but you know like this is where everything con- like everything comes from your life or mm. um you know and you know tommy is kind of really master of like just experiencing stuff in life and then kind of turning it into these really memorable, weird songs that almost sound like Monty Python skits but Mm -hmm. they're like but probably they're things we all kind of have to deal with every day Mm -hmm. so yeah, I kind of I have to tell my mom, she'll kind of she'll dig that like 30 years later (laughs) it's being her, her comment in the on the back porch was, uh, has made it into the <laughs> conversation again.
1: <laughs> well, again, thank you very much. I think we've, we've wasted a lot of your time, but it's, it's been a real pleasure talking to you.
3: Yeah. Same here. No, it's super great. I, I'm going to, uh, I'm going to have to keep tuning into you guys like now. And, um, Oh, thank you. And I super appreciate your, your thing and also how thoughtful everything was. Like, well, thank you. It's going to, it's, you know, it's like, it's a thing, you know, it's like, or it's appreciated, I should say.
1: Well, thank you very thank much. Thank you. That means a lot. And we appreciate you.
3: <laughs> yeah. So stay in touch, man.
1: Yeah, we, we will.
3: Absolutely. You, t- you too. Okay. Talk to you soon. Thanks. All right, take ha- care. Have a good night. Take care. Take care.
2: You Bye. Too. Bye.
1: All right, we got to end things. We have to. We have no choice. But to end things with, you can't have fun.
0: Until next time. Stay safe. Stay healthy.
1: Don't be an asshole.
0: And...